1: business owners, and business leaders. I'm Marty Wolf, your host for the Business Builder Show, and along with my executive producer, D.C. Taylor, we will be your guides on this learning journey. Let me tell you my super objective in being with you today. I want to enthusiastically share stories and information to inspire leaders so they can inspire others. I'm proud to let you know we record the Business Builder Show in the studios of 94.3 FM, The Talker, which is part of Bold Gold Media in Scranton, Pennsylvania. The Business Builder Show is distributed by C-Suite Radio. You can find our show and many other fine shows at C-Suite Radio, and that's c-suiteradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. My special guest with me today is Rick Wartzman. Hi, Rick. How are you?
0: I'm doing well. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing fantastic. I'm going to do a quick introduction, and we're going to get into the meat of the matter, if you will, on a book that Rick wrote. Rick Wartzman is the director of the KH Moon Center for a functioning society at the Drucker Institute, a part of Claremont Graduate University. Rick Wartzman is also a regular contributor to Fast Company, and he does a great podcast called The Bottom Line, and he wrote a great book that we're going to spend time on today, and the title of that book is The End of Loyalty. The rise and fall of good jobs in America, and again, written by w- Rick Wartzman. So, Rick, um, I think it was in the introduction, and uh, it said, it, uh, I think it said that you started this work in 2009, and then it was published in 2017. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, I'm slow. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, these, this is a, this is kind of a, a big, sweeping uh, narrative history, and yeah. Uh, yeah, it takes a lot of time to. Well, kind of dig out all that archival material and do yeah. the extensive research that really is the backbone of a book like this.
1: Yeah, and that's why I mentioned it. Uh, it was uh, well worth the work and the weight. It's uh, it's an extraordinary book. I enjoyed every page of it. So, um, the book is written through the lens of uh, four companies: mm-hmm. uh, General Electric, General Motors, Kodak, and Coke. So. Why these three companies, and maybe interweave that in what generally the book is about?
0: Sure. So I chose those four companies actually for yeah. um, yes uh, again for narrative reasons in in large part. Um, so I was looking for a way to tell this larger story about how the what I I define as the social contract between employer and employee in America, um, which is made up of job security, pay, um, health care coverage, and retirement uh, benefits, mm-hmm. um, and to some degree, worker engagement as well, how all those things have changed from the end of World War II until um, today. And I originally, I thought I might focus on one company um, to tell that bigger story. I, I actually spent quite a bit of time poking around at um, at HP, at Hewlett-Packard, mm-hmm. uh, which would have been a, also a good company to focus on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's some others as well. Uh, IBM makes a cameo in the book and so yes. on. But but ultimately, my, my publisher, I think, rightfully pushed back and said, you know, if you do an HP book, even if you're trying to write about these bigger themes, it's going to just be an HP book. And and so you need to find some way to, to sort of bring in multiple employers. And that led me to the founding of this organization, uh, the Committee for Economic Development, the CED, mm-hmm. uh, which is still around today. It's now part yeah. of the conference board, actually. Yeah. Uh, but, but it was uh, formed in ni- late 1942. And it was really America's business leaders trying to forge their vision for what post-war America, what the, both the economy and really society at large, what it would be about, what it should look like. And uh, we can get into it, but but basically, these four iconic companies—GE, GM, Kodak, and Coca-Cola—were four of the founding uh, kind of member companies of the CED. And um, Mm. uh, so it became a great. I used the founding of that organization as a way to to launch the book, and then weave in and out of their stories over this seventy-year arc.
1: Yeah, Um, one of the thoughts I was reading as I was reading the book is. As much as things change, they tend to stay the same in some regards. Um, but the historical view I found very, very helpful and very interesting now i 'm going to take you down a road that I know you 're comfortable with because kind of we can 't cover everything in twenty or thirty minutes so sure i 'm going to start with um, talk to me about the role that unions played in these companies uh, and in our country and uh, how you describe it in your book. So let's talk about the union side of it, okay?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So um, I spent a lot of time early in the book um, writing about um, these big industrial unions, particularly uh, the United Auto Workers, um, led mostly by Walter Ruther Mm -hmm. um, over much of the period that, that I wrote about, and also the electrical workers um, and uh, you know the, there were others too, right? The steel workers and, yeah. and so on, and and they were really instrumental in forging the social contract. Um, again, as I as I described it in terms of good pay and benefits, and and at that time job security mm-hmm. um, across the economy, um, not just for their members, not just for those carrying a union card, right? But at that time, and, and ultimately by the mid-50s, when private sector unionization um, reached its height in America, about 35%, slightly more, of the private sector workforce was unionized. Mm-hmm. And when you get to that level, and even anywhere, the, the research suggests, the scholarly research suggests, when 25 to 35% of the private sector workforce is unionized, there's a tremendous spillover effect.
1: Yep. Sure. the
0: rest of the economy. And yeah. so yeah. Um, you get other employers who one, want to keep unions out. And in order to keep unions out, they have to keep up with what yeah. uh, the unionized companies are you know, being sort of forced at the bargaining table to offer their unionized workers. Yeah. And so uh, unions were really responsible through this spillover effect to helping forge the social contract, not only for their own members, but again, this much wider swath of the American workforce. And of course, we've seen that, you know, now in, in steady decline over many decades, to the yeah. point where it's now only about, it's only six and a half percent of private sector workers who are unionized. And so there's no longer this big countervailing force um, yeah. uh, of worker power and worker voice sort of being able to uh, counter, be a countervailing force against corporate power. And it is one factor among many that has led to the decline of the social
1: contract. So I am speaking with Rick Wartzman. His last name is spelled W-A-R-T-Z-M-A-N. His book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. So I guess there's a clue in that title. Um, Let's shift to companies again. I'm going to come back to the way you broke out the book into three parts. I'm just staying Mm -hmm. general for for a minute, Rick. Uh, Sure. So, So let's shift to the, I'll call it the actions and the challenges of these companies that you've talked about. Um, But I want you to answer that by telling me who this gentleman, Lem Boulware, is. Tell me who (laughs) he is, because he ran through the entire book.
0: Yeah, Lem Boulware was the head of labor relations at General Electric, beginning in the 1940s um, and all the way through uh, kind of the mid to late '60s, he he held um, that job, and uh, at that point, General Electric, like these other big industrial companies, was very heavily unionized. Mm-hmm. Um, and he he was an interesting character. He he took um, what was seen by those in organized labor as an incredibly hard line against unions. Yeah. At the same time, he really did believe that one of the ways you counter unions was to um offer quite a bit in terms of uh, good pay and benefits and job security to g e workers. He just didn't think he needed unions to do that. He thought that um, really the the best way for companies uh, employee relations to work was for companies to be open and transparent with their workers and to have a direct line of communication and and you yeah. know he would say who needs this third party coming in and getting in the way of this yeah. relationship between employee uh, and, and employer yeah. um, and so he kind of made an end run around um, the electrical workers yeah. ultimately his bargaining tactics were found to be illegal. Um, and Boulwareism, as it was called, as a a kind of an anti-union tactic. Um, But he represents, in some ways, kind of the rise of the social contract in that he led employee relations at GE in an era where there were steadily rising pay and great benefits. Um, And he also really helped uh, kind of seed the beginning of the end for big unions.
1: Yeah, fascinating. And uh, I'm— Going to admit that I didn't even know he existed, and so so that's why that's important.
0: And yeah, there's one other. Actually, might I mention one other thing, just as, as a great note of history, which is Lem Belair was also the mentor uh, to somebody who um, kind of cut his teeth in terms of building his own ideology and um, political philosophy at General Electric, um, and that was Ronald Reagan who, of course, as you remember, was sure. the host of General Electric Theatre for many years. Sure. Um, but he was also really a spokesman for the company and its anti-union uh, fervor and rhetoric. And he mm. kind of studied at the knee of Lem Ware, And uh, Lem Ware was a great mentor to Ronald Reagan and helped shift his own thinkings. If you remember, he at one point led the actors union in Hollywood. And he would shift union, Reagan into a uh, really... an anti union though.
1: Yeah. Um, that's why, again, the, the history and the way you wrote it, taking back from World War II, taking us to the present day, I, I thought was so so helpful. Stay here for more of the Business Builder Show with Marty Wolf. My friends at nastpartners.com asks you, who will take you there? The Predictive Index allows you to decode the complexities of your people and realize what drives workplace behaviors so you can ensure alignment, reach your team's true potential, and achieve your business objectives faster than ever. The Predictive Index uses proven science to help you manage across the hire to retire life cycle with scientifically validated workforce assessments that provide high-impact insights in minutes. That's the Predictive Index. Learn more at nastpartners.com. That's my friend Dave Nast at nastpartners.com. That's N-A-S-T, nastpartners.com. So again, my guest is Rick Wartzman. Rick, what's the best way to pay attention to your work, uh, the KH Moon Center? What would you suggest we, we, the way we connect with you?
0: Uh, you know the best way, if if you're interested, so my writing on Fast Company or my podcast is just to follow me uh, on Twitter at R and it's just at R W A R T Z M A N, and um, yeah, I, you know I'm I'm very active on there and and post all of my work on there.
1: That's superb. Okay, so you did re- you did break the book down into three parts, and again, let's address these and get a little more specific, I guess, uh, in whatever sure. ways you'd like. Uh, but I definitely want to spend some time on the last chapter, which is the new face yeah. of capitalism. So the first part of the book is the golden age, and you've you've touched on it. But talk to me, just give me more details on what you mean by the golden age.
0: Sure. So you know the the golden age really lasted uh, from kind of the end of World War II up until the early 1970s, and it, I should say immediately that it's, it's golden age with a big asterisk. This was a golden age really for white men. Ah, Um, yeah, people of color, um, were really even more than today, blatantly discriminated against in the workplace. Women were shut out in Mm -hmm. the workplace to Mm -hmm. a tremendous degree, to the degree they they had jobs. They were sort of shunted into this pink collar ghetto of being, you know, secretaries and typists and things like that. Um, and so there was a tremendous amount of, of discrimination. But, but that said, and, and that's not insignificant, you know, for a huge portion of the American workforce, that kind of 30 year run was a, um, a period of great job security, uh, really tremendously rising uh, incomes uh, in inflation adjusted terms, you know, wages for uh, the vast majority of the American workforce went up. Uh, you know, like 75 um, uh, yeah. percent pay and benefits combined went up over 90 percent over this stretch again from kind of 1947 to 1973. Mm-hmm. Um, so it really it really was a period where um, all boats were rising. This is yeah. the period. If you remember yeah. where the great American middle class was really yeah. created. Yeah, this is where it happened. Yeah. Times were good. Times were good. so that was forged out of this social contract largely by these big companies that dominated the world stage.
1: Yeah. um, So obviously that didn't last because you went into part two. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously (laughs) that didn't continue. We talk about the turbulent times. So talk to me about that, Rick.
0: Well, there were a whole bunch of factors. Look, one, and, and some historians and many observers point out that one reason American companies could afford to be so generous after World War II and through this period was that we had kind of knocked our global competition out of existence, right? Japan was in rubbles, much of Europe was in ruins. And so, uh, you know, we were were the only game in the global marketplace and and big American companies could could afford all this stuff. And I think there's some truth to that. And this was a really unique period. You had Period where union strength, is, again, was rising and very strong, um, and extracting a lot of benefits and, and higher wages for uh, workers, and again, not just union workers, but beyond that. Um, and, and so you had, you know, you had this, and you had this creation of the great middle class, right? The baby boom generation, people coming back from war, and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sort of launching suburbia and jet travel and the purchasing of appliances and, and yeah. all kinds of things that were that were happening televisions and, and so on. It was it was really just a boom time. Yeah. Um, so all, all of that, all of that happened to to fuel the rise. And then these things change. You know, there many of your listeners who are old enough will remember the the double whammy that came in the, the early 1970s of both uh, a, a severe recession with incredibly high unemployment. And also at the same time, out of control inflation, right? This, right. this period of stagflation, yeah. which really just was a, a gut punch to the American economy. Productivity yeah. growth began to slow. Economic growth slowed. Inflation was high. Um, you had the rise of global competition.
1: Yeah, Automation
0: began to take a bite, something that people yeah. are increasingly concerned about in an age, you know, yeah. t- today where, uh, you know, we have... Uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning coming coming on ever faster. Um, but that all began really in the in the 70s yeah. um, as well. The decline of unions was biting. Um, and so it was this confluence of forces that that all happened um, kind of at one time. And uh, some of it was that American companies had almost gotten too successful and right. got kind yeah. of fat and lazy through this earlier period. Yeah. And, um, and you know, this was their comeuppance.
1: Yeah. And you, and you go into certain things like General Motors was probably the one that was probably the best example, I guess, uh, of uh uh you know fat dumb and lazy i hate to use that phrase but yeah uh, kind of of that's what it was and you you tell that story but they all fell prey to that and and quite frankly it was complex man i mean there was a lot going on at that point in time especially on the international level so you know what i feel for these leaders i mean i am a baby boomer and i saw some of this um and firsthand and uh You know, with uh, W. Edward Deming and the total quality management thing and all that kind of stuff going on, I saw it. So I feel for them. So I guess possibly as a reaction to all of these turbulent times, I guess, we really focused on um, the era of shareholder supremacy. Yes. Yeah. Talk to me what that means, shareholder (laughs) supremacy.
0: So this was a shift. I mean, the way I look at this and, and I agree with you and, and I and I hope, you know, many many have found the book uh, maybe too a fault. Some who wanted me to take a stronger, you know, view on certain things probably think it's too much, you know, not black and white enough, too much gray, but I always think history is full of grays and I, and yeah, I don't I agree make corporate leaders out to be villains and and no. I don't, you know, exalt union leaders, you know. I I I see Pluses and minuses in in, yeah. in both sides of the you know their stories. Sure. Um, and so you know, I, and I do think there were tremendous pressures again coming on, beginning in the seventies, accelerating through the eighties, and into today of globalization of automation. You know, unions. There was a lot where. And I think chiefly employers went after unions kind of hammer and tong to to defeat organized labor. But there were structural changes in the economy and unions made their own missteps as well that that helped lead to the decline of unions. So it's complicated and it's messy. And a lot of those bigger forces, globalization, automation and also a shift to knowledge work where, you know, one of the big shifts in the book talks about how you could be somebody in this golden age, you know, the 40s, to the 70s have very little education and walk into a factory and find a job. It was a hard job. It was often a backbreaking job, but you had a path to the middle class. That really doesn't exist anymore. And nope. it began to fade away yeah. in the seventies. Yeah. And so all of those changes are beyond, I agree with you, beyond, I feel for those executives, it's beyond sort of their control.
1: Rick, if you've well, never, it, if you've never seen it before, and if it, there's not a roadmap to follow,
0: that's correct.
1: You've just got to try stuff. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> right. I mean, so, so, so again, yeah. I guess this is where, and probably Coke is the leading story of this, uh, the whole yeah. shareholder yeah. supremacy. Maybe Coke is the best example. What do you think?
0: It may be. I mean, they've all, look, all of these companies have followed this. And so this is what I was going to say those bigger forces are, are things I think beyond any executive or company's control. Mm. Mm-hmm. But what is in a company's control is this other great shift that has happened beyond the shift to knowledge work, beyond, you know, having a global, highly competitive economy, beyond technology and automation, becomes this shift that happened also in the mid-70s, fueled by some of these other trends. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is, CEOs and big companies used to talk, um, you know, very explicitly in this kind of golden age about balancing the interests of all of their stakeholders. Yeah. Their shareholders, yeah. absolutely. Right. But also their the communities they yeah. operated in, their customers yeah. and their yeah. workers, these these constituencies and their interests.
1: Yeah. So they were talking about what we call conscious capitalism and the triple bottom line. They were
0: talking about it then. Yeah. Right? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Well, not only were they talking about it, they were they were to a great degree living. Sure. And yeah. then and then there was this shift And it led by some academics, including Milton Friedman and this gentleman named Michael Jensen, who's now at Harvard, was at the University of Rochester's business school. They led this shift to this era of, of shareholder primacy or this idea that that executives have one function, and that is to serve as the agents of the shareholders and make them as much money as possible to maximize shareholder value. Mm-hmm. And we've seen this this shift in corporate culture, and that is a choice, you know, that is that is not a an outside pressure. There's some outside pressure from Wall Street and from, you mm. know, activist investors today or what yeah. we used to call corporate raiders. Right. But this is a choice and it's a choice now largely driven by the fact that CEO compensation has has gotten tied to yeah. the the you yep. know, to share price and often short term, at least relatively short term share price. Right. And so what this has meant in practice is that companies have shifted away on the worker front from seeing their workers as things you invest in, right, as assets you invest in by training them, by giving them better benefits, by raising their pay over time. One of the reasons we've had stagnant wages in this country for 40 years, I would argue a very chief reason why benefits have eroded and why worker training, particularly for frontline workers, has really evaporated in this country is that is that now executives look out and they see employees as costs to be yeah. minimized not mm-hmm. as assets to be invested in mm. and their costs to be minimized because the way you drive up share price is you cut costs yeah. as fast as you can yeah yeah and and I'll give you one statistic which is pretty mind blowing so bill lazonic is an economist at the university of massachusetts who's done the best work in this area and what he's found if you look at the s&p 500 um in the 1970s, about half their profits went, went out to benefit shareholders, to, usually at that point in the form of dividends, okay? Mm-hmm. And the other half was reinvested back in the company, in R&D, but also in higher compensation for employees, worker training, and so on. Mm-hmm. Over the last 10 years, if you look at S&P 500 profits – 94 percent has gone out the door to benefit shareholders wow. in, in in the form of share buybacks chiefly and dividends
1: wow wow! we
0: stopped reinvesting in our companies and in our workers
1: wow that is a staggering statistic yes
0: it is. and you know that's a, another
1: reason why i love the book i love your work um you know, we can get emotional about this stuff, but let's look at the raw data. Let's look at the information, yeah, right? And Absolutely. and folks, we are speaking with Rick Wartzman, and his book is The End of Loyalty, The Rise and Fall of Good Jobs in America. Tell us again how people can follow you, Rick. What's the best way? Tell us again.
0: Yeah, it's just at Wartzman on Twitter.
1: Okay, so uh, we need to start wrapping up, but we must spend time on the closing chapter, yep. which is the new face of capitalism, and I guess Walmart is the star of that chapter, yep. I guess. So talk to me about that chapter.
0: Yeah, so I, I focus on Walmart as, the, as my narrative moves into the 21st century. Um, there were a bunch of scholars who were literally asking the question, hey, if General Motors was the paradigmic company, kind of the emblematic company in many ways of the 20th century, who's the emblematic company of the 21st? Mm-hmm. And we might have said, you know, Google or something like that right now, Alphabet, um, you know, maybe Microsoft, but but the scholars settled on Walmart. And particularly at that time, that is, you know, 17, 18 years ago now, um, Walmart's model, of course, was very different than these earlier employers. Its Its philosophy was to um, keep costs, and in many ways still is, as low as possible, um, so that customers can get a good deal. But they did this, again, particularly in that era, and they've actually come around and changed quite a bit. Yes. But they really sought to kind of ground down their workers as much as they could. Um, yes. Yes. They were a minimum wage employer at that point, um, to the extent that many of their workers, as we know, you know, for their health care, they ended up in the hospital emergency room. Yeah. For housing, they ended up on public housing assistance. Yeah. Yeah. You know, these are, these are people employed, working hard, trying to play by the rules, yeah. and just not being able to make it um, on those kind of low wages.
1: And um, you're probably going to go there, but I want to make sure you do go there. On the other hand, Walmart had the view that they're driving the economy. They're helping people they're yep. driving the economy because they can afford these products right
0: yeah i mean i think it's i think that view was pretty backward which is to say <laughs> if you i agree but that's look, what they said If you look at the golden age view, it was we're going to raise wages, right? Yeah. And we're going to improve benefits and so on to put more money into people's pockets. This was the classic Henry Ford idea. Yeah. I'm going to raise my workers' wages from a dollar a day to five dollars a day, right? In the teens. Right. And in turn, they'd be able to afford cars. They're going to buy Fords. And that, there was this kind of, you know, what was called the dynamic logic of mass production. You sort of right. fueled this this flywheel, right? It got turning. Right. Higher wages, people spent more, particularly the working class spends what it makes. It doesn't save a whole lot. And it fuels this growth in the economy. As we've choked off wages, yeah, maybe that helps keep prices low. Yeah, But it's really dampened economic growth. And, and I think to some degree, Walmart has come around to realize- they have
1: yeah um, they're no
0: longer a minimum wage yeah. employer. they also realize it's not very good in terms of keeping employees around. There's tremendous turnover when you do that when you yep. don't invest in your people and in turn, customer service actually suffers yeah <laughs> there you go that's a
1: technical term for it yes you know Rick I think it's 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 driven out of sheer necessity i mean and you mentioned costco and you and the competitive mm-hmm. pressures that they have to i mean they they can't find help so i think it's a reality check so we only have a minute or two left i, I want to get your take on something what's going on with this health care thing or give me your viewpoints on i find it fascinating that uh uh jamie diamond and uh, walter or warren buffett and uh, jeff yeah. bezos are are, are 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 taking on health care in america what's what's your thoughts tell me that
0: yeah, it's interesting. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about what they're doing. They've been they've been yeah. pretty quiet about it. But yeah. I assume it's some way to, you know, leverage their size and market positions to keep sure. trying drive costs down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, what I what I would say is, you know, the big debate and it's an interesting one has obviously been over the ACA and Obamacare. And it's important in there. You right. know, when you add in the Medicaid recipients through the what was the expansion of Medicaid before Trump, you know, it's maybe 20 million people or so, something like that affected. So, and it's not to be, it's very serious. Those who are going to lose their health insurance because of changes that are being made. But remember that 150 million or so people in this country get health coverage through an employer, through their employer or their spouses. And for those folks, there's been a steady erosion of benefits and costs shifted more onto the shoulders of working families yeah. for decades on end now. There were right huge increases in premiums, costs that are, are being shifted onto uh, employees, and you know other out-of-pocket um, right, costs um, that, that have been shifted onto uh, employees. And that's the real story to me. Yeah. That is yeah. the one no one's paying as much attention to. Um, And that's where I hope maybe uh, this, you know, new alliance that you mentioned can can begin to make a difference.
1: I I think it's going to. So Rick Wartzman has been my guest. He is the director of the KH Moon Center for a Functioning Society at the Drucker Institute, which is part of Claremont Graduate University. He is also a regular contributor to Fast Company, and he has a great podcast called The Bottom Line. So, Rick Wartzman, thank you so much for being part of the Business Builders Show.
0: Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf. Reminding you to find all our shows and many other great shows on C Suite Radio, that's C Suite On behalf of myself, Marty Wolf, your host, and DC Taylor, my executive producer, thank you for listening to the Business Builders Show and make sure you stay tuned for information on how you can become part of the C-Suite Network.
0: Bringing the business classroom to you. It's the Business Builders Show with Marty Wolf.
1: As a loyal fan of this C-Suite Radio Show, we've got an unbelievable offer for you. Listeners to the Business Builders Show get 50% off a C-Suite Network membership. The C-Suite Network will help you become the most strategic person in the room. You'll have access to top-notch benefits and networking, all helping you get the most out of your position. Take advantage of this limited-time offer today. Learn more about the C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com CSR. Again, that's 50% off a C-Suite Network membership at c-suitenetwork.com CSR.